This is a Saddleback Church podcast. We're in the middle of a message series that's called The Lost Art of Friendship. And this has been a great series so far. We've been looking at the idea that God formed, he shaped us for community. So inherent in our design as humans is this longing, this desire for relationship with one another. We're hardwired with it. In fact, God said when he made Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. He wants us to do life together. And research shows us that when we do life together, it leads to longer lives. It leads to better lives, richer lives. And actually, when you don't do life with other people, there's a lot of pain that we experience, and there's consequence. In fact, this last week I was doing some research, and I found it to be interesting. Uh, the consequence of isolation or loneliness, so not having a whole lot of friends, affects our health. And studies show us that it's actually worse to be lonely than it is to smoke 15 cigarettes a day. Now somebody just said, I knew it, I needed a reason to smoke. I got a bunch of friends, that's three-fourths of a pack a day. And that was not the point. So if you walk out of here, that's not what I was intending to say. But the consequence of of isolation or loneliness on our lives impacts us deeply. And today what I want to talk about is the idea or the subject of investing our lives in friendships. And I want to begin with the concept of how much time does it take to build a friendship? How much time does it take for us to form community? I saw this research report done by Kansas University that talked about the number of hours that was required for friendship. And what they noticed was at 50 hours, people would say they were casual friends with one another. So if you spent 50 hours... It's a little bit more than one work week. Uh, That would be enough to be a casual friend with somebody. But there was another breakthrough that they discovered. Once you got to 90 hours, you were actually a friend. So you went from a casual friend to a friend at 90 hours. And then at 200 hours, that's when you fall into the category of a good friend. And somebody said, that's why my dog is my best friend. Because we spend a whole lot of time together. That's why my cat is not a good friend. They're never around when I'm at home, so I just had to include that for you. But every season of life comes with different opportunity for friendship, and when you hear that number, for me personally, the thought that goes through my mind is where in the world am I going to find 200 hours to form friendships? And it makes me think about my life, knowing that we're a multi-generational church for those who are students in high school and college Part of the reason why we form such good friendships in school is because we spend so much time together. I was looking back, this is a picture of my sweet mates in college, going left to right. Felipe, he is now the pastor of the church that Stacy and I started in the San Francisco Bay Area. His wife, Mandy, and he lead there. Kelly, I always need to say Kelly the guy. Kelly is a worship leader. Kevin is in ministry, myself, and then Ryan is a senior pastor of a church in Seattle, Washington. And we're good friends to this day, but our friendship was formed by hundreds of hours doing stupid pranks and things that college students do. And it was easy during that season of life to form those friendships. But now it's hard to think about how do I, especially when you're in the middle season of life and you've got kids' activities and you've got so much busyness in your life, how do you form friendships? And actually, our culture even seems to be working against us. Like if you go back 20 years ago, what you'll notice, according to research, is that the average person would spend 30 hours per month with their friends. 
So that's about seven and a half hours a week with your friends. And now today, we see that people spend about 10 hours per month with their friends. So that's a stark difference. There was a deep nosedive in 2008. Does anybody know what happened in 2008? That's when the smartphone came out. And all of a sudden, we had a new friend to occupy our time. And the question still remains, how do we form community in our culture, in our lives, today in the 21st century, in 2023? How do we find the time for friendship? How do we find the time to form meaningful community? And I want today to go back to Jesus as the ultimate example. Now in your notes, I want you to write down two words. And the first word I want you to write down is the word prescriptive. And the second word I want you to write down is descriptive. So when we read the Bible, it's important for us to understand there are descriptive moments where the Bible is describing life and how it works and how humans respond to God and how humans respond to one another. There's a descriptive narrative to the Bible and there is also a prescriptive component where God will give us commandments of how we live our lives. The New Testament and Paul's letters and so much of Jesus' teaching would give us a prescriptive way to live in God's kingdom. And when we see the Bible through these two lenses, it helps us because there are times like you're reading the Old Testament. I was reading this morning in Judges in my time alone with God and I noticed this story where people were killing one another because the boundary line of their land. It's not like you read that and you're like, oh, my, my neighbor's creeping over. I need to, while they're asleep tonight, go over their house. It's like that, 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 would, that would not be a good interpretation of the Bible because it's descriptive. We can see principles, we can learn, but prescriptive helped us, helps us understand what does God teach us, how do we live? Now, here's why I'm bringing this together. Jesus was descriptive in how he lived, he was prescriptive in how he taught, but we can assume when we look at the life of Jesus that Jesus lived the perfect human life. So Jesus modeled for us how humans are supposed to live. He lived into God's design of how God intends for us to live. So the descriptive nature of Jesus' life can be prescriptive of how we live. And there are principles tucked within how Jesus did life. He was the greatest teacher that ever existed. There's nobody that understood life, mental health, relationships, finances, everything about life more than Jesus. He's the perfect teacher. So I want us to look at how Jesus formed friendships a little bit deeper today. And I want us to think about the idea of investment. How did Jesus choose his friends? How did Jesus choose the people he would spend time with? Now in Mark chapter three, we're gonna see two instances of the moment where Jesus would choose his friends. And we're gonna look at Mark's account and then we're gonna go to Luke's account. Mark begins and he says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. And then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Now in your notes, underline that phrase that says they might be with him because that phrase is important. So Jesus is going from town to town. He's teaching, he's healing, he's investing in the crowds, but there's a smaller group of people, his apostles, that he's training up. He's getting them ready to go out into the world with the good news of the kingdom of God. And the way he's preparing them is through doing life with him. So they're with him everywhere he goes. But the question still remains, how did Jesus choose these 12? So Luke actually gives us a little a glimpse into how Jesus chose the 12. 
It says, one day, soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray. So Jesus modeled for us this life of pulling away to be alone with the Father and then coming back and doing ministry. So he goes away on the mountain to pray and then he comes back. It says, after praying to God all night, and then at daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and then he chose 12 of them to be his apostles. So notice what Jesus does. Jesus pulls away, he prays, he seeks his father, he asks his father to give him direction, and as the father gives him direction, he comes back and he chooses the 12 based upon the father's direction. And the point is, to begin relationship in a way that God designed is to invest in praying first. Now, it's, it's hard when you think about relationships because so much of it happens by proxy. Like, you're, you're close to somebody, you're neighbors with them, you work with them, they're roommates. By proxy, we develop friendship. But how many of you wish you could go back in time and undo just one friendship, just one friendship, out of curiosity? And this would not be a good time to tell your neighbor you're that friend. But, but we all, if we could go back, there are relationships that in our lives we wish that we could steer clear of. So Jesus went up on a mountainside alone, prayed to God, and the Father showed him where to invest his life. He invested through prayer first. And the power of praying is that God can reveal to us the relationships. People often get married without praying, who should I marry? People often start businesses with never considering Should I start a business? God, do you want me to do business with this person? So prayer, what it does is it steers us clear of bad decisions, and it shows us where the Father is at work. If there's any prayer that I pray for my kids, it's this prayer. God, lead them to the right friends. Put the right people around them. Help them do life with those that will move them in the right direction. And there are some kids that I have prayed out of my kids' lives. Like, none of your kids, for sure. But, but there are moments, and all of us who are parents can relate to that, there are moments where you are praying people out of your children's lives. And the power of this is that prayer is to be integrated into the process of choosing our friendships. It's to invest in prayer first. Now, the journey of following Jesus is we trust in him for salvation for our sins, but there's a lordship, there's a surrender to him. And when he becomes the Lord and master of our life, he has jurisdiction over everything. So that means how I handle my finances and what I do with my time and my thought life are all under the lordship of Jesus. So he has the lordship, he has the authority of my friendships. He has the authority to help me choose who he wants me to invest in. And I wonder, if God has that freedom with you. I wonder if you're honest with yourself, if you would say, yeah, God, if you told me who to spend time with, I would spend time with them. And maybe the prayer for you this week would be, God, who do you want me to spend more time with, and who do you want me to spend less time with? And there's some teenager here that just said, God told me I need to spend less time with my little sister. I just, and maybe that's the voice of God, maybe it's not. but. That prayer, the power, investing in prayer first. Now the second thing is to invest along the journey. To invest along the pathway of life. So Jesus brings these disciples in as he's traveling along doing ministry. And you notice as Jesus would heal and teach, if you study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he'd teach and then they'd come away and Jesus would unpack a parable for them. 
or he would heal and then he would walk away and talk about what the father was doing. And the disciples, they, they, they were close to Jesus so they saw his ministry along the journey. They were integrated into the life of Jesus. They were integrated into the ministry of Jesus. And I want you to write that line down, that phrase down, integration or integrated. That relationship is to be integrated into our lives. And sometimes you can think, well, I've gotta get a new hobby. Like, perhaps maybe you're gonna pick up pickleball. A lot of people picking up pickleball these days. Wouldn't it be cool to have some pickleball courts on the Lake Forest campus? Maybe one day we will. But until that point, there are other places. And, and sometimes we think, well, well, maybe I need to do this new thing. Like, maybe, maybe I need to do water aerobics. Maybe I need to pick up bowling. Maybe I need to find some other hobby but there's a difference between a mindset that says, I'm already going about my life. I'm already doing these things. And a question that I would wrestle through is, where am I going to spend 200 hours already over the next couple of years? So what's that place that you already will be? And what would it look like in the places that we're already going to be more intentional in the friendships that we're forming to integrate into our life relationship and friendship with the things that we're already doing. There's something so powerful about this that Jesus is modeling. And when he's with people, he'd give them a look. He would give them a touch and he would give them a word. Pastor Rick would often say this. Jesus would give a look, a touch, and a word in the relationships that he was in as he was interacting with people. And that's what's happening. When we're in close proximity to one another, there's a look, there's eye contact, there's a touch with our hands, sometimes prayer and putting our hands on somebody's shoulder or a handshake or a hug or a high five or a knuckles and then there, there's a word that we give. Now, I'm gonna venture to say that you have a friend that you hold more than any other friend. You have a friend that you often hold over 100 times per day. And when that friend is not around, you get nervous. When that friend is not close to you, sometimes you begin to shake. If you leave that friend at home when you leave home, oftentimes you'll turn around and go get that friend. That friend is your phone. And if you will look on your Apple device, if you have one, or your other device, if you do, you will notice that an Apple device will show you how many times you pick up and hold that friend of yours. And I am ashamed to say, I hold that friend 130 times a day. I mean, that's, I just heard somebody go, woo, you're judging me. Go look at your phone, brother. <laughs> Pull open your pickups, and then let's talk afterwards. But isn't it interesting, like that friend goes with you places that no friend should go, <laughs> right? You should not be alone in a bathroom with any friend. That is just weird. But what has happened, the brilliance of the technology companies is that they have integrated into our lives. So they figured out how do we already do life? The places we go, the places we shop, the, the ways we think, what we buy. We, they, they've already come alongside. We check the weather, we, 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 we go to travel, and they figured out how to integrate into our lives. Now, long before there were tech companies, there was Jesus. And Jesus was beautifully modeling for his disciples what he would eventually commission them to do. So he'd spend time with them for a period of three years, but then he would commission them to do the exact same thing that he had done with them. In Matthew 28, Jesus has been crucified. He's resurrected from the dead. 
And after his resurrection, before his ascension back to the Father, Jesus would say these things to his disciples. It says, Jesus came to them and he told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now the reason that Jesus was given all authority is because at the cross, he defeated sin through his blood being shed on a cross. And then at the tomb, when he conquered death and defeated death by kicking it in the face and overcoming the grave, he now has defeated death and he's defeated sin so he can stand in front of his disciples and say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And as a result of that authority that's been given to me, now he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these disciples to obey all the commandments that I have given to you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that's why when we say things like, Jesus is the truest friend that you'll ever have, is that because the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit of God came, the Spirit of God takes up residence inside of our hearts when we put our trust in Jesus. So wherever you go, there God is. And whenever you get there, God's gone before you. So as you're oftentimes lonely personally, God is still near to you at every given moment. So Jesus is saying, I'm still gonna be with you. In fact, he said a few chapters earlier in John, he said, it's better for you if I go because the Spirit is coming. And now as you're being empowered by the Spirit, as the Spirit of God is coming and living and taking up residence in you, I want you to go into the world and make disciples. This is twofold. There's one part that he's saying, I want you to reach people that have never been reached with my love, that we call that evangelism. That's one of God's purposes for our lives. And in addition to that, I want you to teach those who are already my followers how to obey and trust in me, that's discipleship. So both of these are at work in our relationships. But the Great Commission has always traveled along the tracks of relationships. It's always been along the track of friendship. But in our language, when we interpret this and we read it, go back to the verse for just a moment. It says, therefore, go. Therefore, go. And what we would think when we read it, as we see it at face value, it would be easy to miss what is inherent in the commission, what Jesus is saying. Because in the English language, it's like, here I am, Jesus gave me the commission, step out and go. But in the original language, it literally means as you are going. So you're already stepping out. You're going to work on Monday. You're already stepping out. You're going to school this week. You're already stepping out. You're going to a place where you're communicating and spending time with friends. You're already on the path, already along the journey of life. So along the tracks of life, that's where friendship forms. This is why young moms become friends together. This is why college students become, as roommates, become good buddies together, because it's along the journey of life. So coming back to that question, where are you already going? What are you already doing? And this convicts me, because there's so many moments in my life where I'm along the journey of life, but my head is down, and I'm on a phone, or I'm thinking about something else, and perhaps missing the opportunity for friendship or relationship that is right in front of me. Now, strategically, the early followers of Jesus heard this commission and then they went and put it into action in their lives. And when we read the book of Acts, we see from Acts 1 all the way to the end, we see the early church living out the Great Commission. 
Now, sometimes people get confused and they say, well, I just want to go back and be like the church in Acts. And you have to ask the question when somebody asks that, well, what chapter? What chapter do you want to go into? Do you want to go into the one where they were persecuted for their faith? Is that the church in Acts you're talking about? You want to go into the one where they had all those church fights and splits? You want that one? You want the one where they had to make a decision about circumcision? Is that the chapter? I'm just, I mean, that's what I, I want to know. But really what people often are meaning is I just want to go back to Acts 2. That's what they mean when they say that. Because in Acts 2, there was a moment after Jesus' resurrection, the coming of the Holy Spirit, there was a moment where the ideal church was forming and you could see how they interpreted the Great Commission to change their lives and the way that they would do life together. And I love these few verses because they are prescriptive. They, they are in such a way also a description for us of what it looks like for the church to, to live out the Great Commission. And it says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Now, notice these few components. I want you to see that phrase that says devoted themselves. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals. So they were committed to one another. There was a level of commitment in their early church moments where they were together. They spent time with one another. And at the center of that was a table. And there was one table that was a table where the Lord's Supper was celebrated, where they would celebrate communion and the death of Jesus, his body that was broken and the blood that was spilled. But there was another table, and this was the ongoing fellowship that happened around meals together. And in the Bible, there is a description of how we can form community around a table. Early in our marriage, Stacy and I would often go over to people's houses and we would notice that they had big tables. And Stacy said to me one time, I long one day to have a big table in our home. I wanna have a big table that we can have lots of people around the table. One of my buddies built a big table. And once he built it, it was like a challenge to me to see if I could figure out how to build a big table. So during COVID, some of you, if you've been listening to me this last year, you've heard me say this already, but during COVID, I started building things and I built a table. I want you to see the table I built. And you may say, wow, yes. My mom was in town, she, she worked with me on building that table. And uh, I won't tell you what percentage of the quality of the table she gets credit for and what percentage I get credit for, but my mom has built a lot of things in the past and so you can conclude, but I just wanna make sure you know that I participated in the construction <laughs> of this table. And at the end, we got this beautiful table, but before we go to the next picture, I want you to look at this table empty, and I want you to know that this table was not simply designed to be empty or for decor. This table was designed for family. This table was designed for fellowship. And I want you to look at this next picture with the table full, with food, and family, community around the table, and there's something so sacred about the table. Because when you're eating together, and there's fellowship, your defenses are down, and you're opening up your heart, there's something so sacred about those moments where we're eyeball to eyeball. And for all the technology that we have in the world for which we are grateful, we're not trying to return to some prehistoric 
lifestyle where there's no technology. But what we're trying to do is recognize God designed us to be eyeball to eyeball together. There's something inherent in how he made us. This is the reason that the tear ducts are in your eyes. Because when you're crying and you're making eye contact, there's a connection. This is the reason why your mouth and your ears are positioned so close to one another. So that when you're connecting with another human being, you're speaking and listening, but you're looking into their eyes. This is the reason even as your nostrils are right there in front of your face and you can delight in the smell of food. And I'm so thankful. This chapter in Acts that gave us freedom to eat bacon when you're smelling it. It's like, <laughs> oh, I can eat bacon together. Uh, with my friends and family, if you're a vegan, you'll never experience the glory of that delight. <laughs> but it is a wonderful thing. And there's something about design with friends and family and food that we are made. We love to eat at Saddleback Church. And God has designed us for that kind of community. Now, we actually designed the table so that our guests would come and sign it when they come over. And one of my guests, our guests signed it way too big. And I want you to see uh, here, <laughs> Pastor Rick ate the best steak ever there at that table. I think it... I think it might have been a hyperbole, but it was really good steak. And, and that community, you were made for it. You were designed for it. There's something in you that longs for it. But there's a part of commitment that's important. And the last thing I want us to finish on is to invest yourself consistently and sacrificially. To invest yourself consistently and sacrificially. So the early church in Acts 2 consistently and sacrificially devoted themselves to one another. And I want you to see these few verses that remain in that passage of scripture. It says that a deep sense of awe came over them all. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and they shared everything that they had. So there was a generosity that described their community. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those that are in need. And I hope for those of you who've been around Saddleback for 20, 30 years, and I've heard stories of those of you that sacrificed and you were in a tent on the Easter where you froze your keister, and you gave of your life sacrificially, financially with your time and your talents, and you, you invested your money, and you, you sacrificed to get our church to the place that it is today. And a part of the wonder of what God's done here is because there's been a tribe, a group of people that believed in this vision for decades and they poured out their lives the same way the early church did. There was a joy and a generosity to their community. It says they worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper, shared meals with great joy and generosity. And all the while, they praised God and they enjoyed the goodwill of all the people. And each day... The Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So what that means is that this was a table with doors that were open so that all who were hungry could come. So all who were thirsty could drink from the fountain of life that is in Jesus. And that's the image of the church. Don't you want that for your life? Don't you want that kind of joy in your relationships and the richness of fellowship that comes with commitment to one another. See, in our culture, we're so easy to move on to the next thing when it gets difficult. And this value of being committed consistently and sacrificially 
is a deep value in the heart of God. I remember as a kid, my dad was teaching me and training me about this value. I went out for football when I was about 10 years old, played for the Orioles, and we weren't very good. And on top of the fact that we weren't very good, I wasn't very good. So I was like one of the worst on the team. I'll just say it like it is. And for those of you in our international audience, there's a defensive line and an offensive line. The defensive line is there to try to stop the ball from going behind them. The offensive line is there to drive back the defensive line. And there is a quarterback and a running back who gets the ball. If the offensive line doesn't do their job, the defensive line gets through and gets the quarterback or the running back. So I was on the defensive line, second string, practice team that got pummeled by the first string. But one day, one day, I'm on the defensive line, I break through the offensive line. I go straight for the quarterback, I sack him and throw him to the ground. It was a moment of glory. I was so thrilled. And I saw the coach marching towards me, and I thought, oh, here's my moment. He's coming to encourage me and tell me what a great job I did. So he comes towards me. He goes straight past me, right to the person that let me through, grabs him by the face mask and says, I cannot believe that you let Andy Wood through the line. (laughs) Now, later in high school, I wrestled his son, and I won. (laughs) And I said, I can't believe you let your son get beat by Andy Wood. Just kidding, I didn't say that, I didn't. There was no bitterness, no revenge, it was just a good wrestling match. But my point, I went home from that, and I was like, Dad, I'm quitting football, I'm done. I I can't stand this sport anymore, I'm done. And my dad looked at me and said, "Uh, well, first of all, we just paid for the year, and second of all, in our family, we keep our commitments. And that was a very significant moment for me. I remembered that moment in college when I went out for the cheerleading team. <laughs> now you may just have lost a little bit of respect for me, but there was a moment I was slightly attracted to a girl on the cheerleading team and I went out for the cheerleading team and the first week I went out she broke both of her ankles. So here I am and she's gone. And I've got to make a decision whether or not I stick with it for the rest of the year. Well, I stuck with it for the rest of the year. But the good news is I got a wife out of the deal and I married her roommate. So it was worth it. It was worth it. But I never, I never was on the cheer team again. Stacy said, I can't find any cheerleading pictures of you anywhere. I don't know where they are. Somewhere, somewhere they've been burned and sent to the pit of hell. But... But that moment, that moment taught me so much about the power of commitment in community. And we, we share this deep core conviction, Stacy and I both, about that kind of commitment, not just in our activities in life, but when it comes to the church. See, the church is the house of God. And there's all different types of people, different cultures and ethnicities and generations and backgrounds and places that we are spiritually. We all come in need, but there's something that happens when there's a kind of commitment to God's local church. Now, maybe this is not your home church. Maybe you're here visiting and you're looking around, but there's something about being planted in the house of God. There's something about a life that is rooted, even when it's hard. 
And if there's anything that we've learned these last few years when it comes to people's commitment, especially here in the United States, it's so easy. When things don't go the way that we want them to go, we go look for another place. When marriage is not easy, People drop out on their marriage. When friendship is hard, we leave. Sometimes when the church is not how we would do things, we're on to the next thing. But there's something so sacred and beautiful about being planted. In this psalm, Psalm 92, I'll finish on these few verses. It says, those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. As you're planted in the house of God, you bear fruit. And it says, they shall be fresh and flourishing. Oh, thank God for those that have planted themselves in the house of God. Thank you. Thank you to those of you who've committed to Saddleback for 15, 20, 25 years and you flourished. And I always love hearing these stories of people whose kids and grandkids have been changed by this church. And that's my longing and my prayer as well that we would be able to see generation after generation after generation but there, there's a kind of planting in the house of God, a commitment that brings a flourishing. As the psalmist says, that they will be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He's my rock, and there's no unrighteousness in him. And you, you feel this. Like when you come to church, and maybe you've got this garment of heaviness, this weight on your shoulders, and you unburden yourself in the presence of God, and in the church and you walk out with joy and peace and there's a freshness again in your life. The church family, when it comes together for all different backgrounds, there's a joy even when people are worshiping and singing songs and rejoicing in the greatness of God and singing these promises that have existed for thousands of years of who he is and what he's like and what he's done. There's a, there's a vibrance that is rejuvenated in our lives in the house of God. This is happening in a large group as we're worshiping, but it's happening as we join together in small groups and we're getting together in families' houses and we're getting together in small tables around the community and that commitment to a community changes you. There's a kind of richness that can only come as we're consistent and sacrificially engaged in the house of God in the local church. And I wanna call you to full commitment to God's church. I wanna call you to give your life to a vision. I wanna invite you to plant yourself in this house, to say, this is my church family that I'm committed to. And one of the best ways that we can do this, one, we can go through what we call Explore Saddleback, and we talk about that often, and you can get connected to make this your home church. But there's another commitment, and that's being in a small group. It's when you're around other people that, that are committed to you that they can pray for you and when you're not there they notice and they're they're committed to help you along the journey that decision to be in community is one of the most important decisions that we can make along our journey of faith and today you can make the decision to be planted in the house of God and you can do it by getting into a small group so if there's one thing that you do with the message today if there's one step that you take today I want to encourage you to get into a small group to take the step 
to move into community. Now at the end of our service on our patio here at Lake Forest, we've got a bunch of the books for sale. We've got team leaders that are out there. You can take that step there physically. But I wanna give you another way before you leave this room that you can identify and say, I need community. And what I'd like for you to do is if you'll pull out your phone right now and join me by going to our Next Steps page, uh, our program online. Go ahead, I know you're not shopping. I know, I know you're with me. Just pull your phone out and you're, you, this will be one of your pickups for the day with your friend, but you, you'll know this is your most important pickup of the entire day right here. So go ahead, pick your phone up and go to our program there that you'll see. And you'll see on the program there, there's a place where you can click small groups. Now there are a few places on small groups. One of them is that I'm interested in joining a small group. And what is exciting that our team's done is they put together this book. You've heard us talk about it. It journeys together with the messages. It's not too late to get into this book. If you click that button that says join a small group, you put your email there. This book will be sent to you via email before you get to your car. There's, there's a bunch of people sitting in a room somewhere. They'll send it to you immediately. I'm just kidding about the people in the room, but it'll come to you immediately. If you take that step, and then what you'll see, I want you to hear this, Nobody moving around, I want you to hear this. It will also give you a list of groups that are easy to get into that happen on campus. So there's a group of, of uh, there's a bunch of groups that meet, there's about 15 of them that meet throughout the week that if you're not in a group, you can come and that's a great first step. So you come, you're, you're here. Let's say you come and you don't like it and there are weird people and you don't wanna come back. Don't tell anybody I told you this, but just, Hang with it for a few weeks, and if they're still weird after a few weeks, we'll help you find another group with a few, less, like a few, less fewer, fewer weird people, okay? But, but just taking that step right now in this moment, it takes about 30 seconds, it's so huge. Some of you, perhaps the step you would take is to host a group and to say, I'm, I'm ready to form community. Maybe you've got a group of friends. You don't have to be pre-qualified spiritually. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to have all, all this pedigree. You can just simply get together with a group of people. We'll give you what you need. You can click there and immediately sign up for a group. I wanna encourage you, that decision is so, so important. So before we leave this room, would you take the step to get into community, to say yes to that? I wanna pray for you. And then we'll take a moment to wrap up our service with our offering. But first, I want to just let these truths set in our hearts. Father, thank you today. Thank you for your church. Thank you for this beautiful bride with all of its brokenness and all the things that are not ideal after Acts 2 that happened. We see all the brokenness in our world, but somehow you're still making your bride beautiful. You're still using your bride to reach the world. And I thank you, God, that we get the privilege of giving our lives, being a part of a community of faith that ushers in the kingdom of God. Thank you for that great eternal promise that you would make. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And as we plant ourselves in your church, in your house, O oh God, you promise that our lives will flourish for generations to come. And I pray today that nobody would walk out alone, nobody would walk out without identifying, I need 
community. God, thank you. Thank you that community is here and present and we can find it today by stepping forward in response to your truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekend message from Saddleback Church. If you like this, please consider leaving a rating or review for this podcast. The Saddleback Church Weekend Message Podcast is a part of the Saddleback family of podcasts. Visit saddleback.com slash podcasts or search for Saddleback Church in your favorite podcasting app to see more great podcasts from Saddleback. For more Weekend Message resources, visit saddleback.com slash message resources.